and welcome back to WEBS and EB Smith Project, Living the Blues, Blues and Culture. We're here with uh, Dr. Sperry, Dr. Benjamin Sperry. Right. And we kind of talked away from the mic about how he got into uh, history. We're talking before about civil rights history, but he kind of segued into black history. One of the questions I think I asked him when I first met him, I met him and his wife at an affair, right. was how was it that uh, white folks wanted to teach black history? You know, <clears throat> that was different for me, you know, right. Right. but we want you to tell us how you got interested in that and what made yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I, I'm a white guy. So, uh, you know, what's a, I think the way you phrase it was, what, what's a white guy doing teaching black history? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I have taught elements of history that I don't have any personal connection to. I've taught women's history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've taught history of ancient civilization. So I've taught history where I don't have a direct personal stake in it, you may, might say. <clears throat> um, but back in terms of black history and what interests me about black history, I'm interested in American history, and I think the black freedom struggle. Now, <clears throat> the civil rights movement would be a discrete period from the mid-50s to the late 60s, say. And when you talk about the African-American freedom struggle, you're talking about from the inception of slavery to this moment, right. the whole struggle. Uh, I think that is essential to the American story. I think if you believe in freedom, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in the words that are chiseled on the, you know, in the the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address, uh, they're talking about freedom. They're talking about full participation. And if we really believe in those things as a society, uh, we have to apply it to everybody, and particularly we have to apply it to African Americans. So I think the there's something essentially American about the African American freedom struggle to me. Yeah. Um, I and I guess I've I've always even as a kid even when I couldn't articulate it uh, I've always been interested in um, black progress black my heroes as a kid was you know my we talked about baseball off camera. Henry Aaron was my hero as a kid. I guess I, in a way I kind of um, identified personally in some way as an American with the African-American freedom struggle. Okay? So the, my work as a historian has gotten, uh, has gotten more into black history and also working in environments that are primarily black, like our prison system. I mean, I started my prison work in the jails, in the, in the Cuyahoga County Jail, and at that time, you could walk through that building for two hours, and staff or inmate, you, you would not see a non-black face. For two, everybody was black. Mm -hmm. um, in the state prison systems system, you see a, more of a mix, but it's, it, it can be a, definitely a predominantly black environment. Mm -hmm. So I find myself not only teaching black history, but also working with, with African-Americans in a lot of ways. Does that answer your question or you want to go a little deeper on that or? No, no, that's, that's you know, I, I would imagine if you're in, you know, because one of the things I always look at for me is with black folks, 
we always, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, it's always been more beneficial for us to, and one of the reasons I asked the question, to understand white folks than it has been beneficial for them to understand us. Being that our life depended on us understanding white folk, whereas right. your life didn't depend on you. I mean, it, it, it's like no, I, understand. I, can, I can do it if I feel like it. You the know per, what I mean? The person in the powerful position does not have to pay attention to people who right. don't have the power. One okay. of the things he used to say down south is that no white person has to recognize any right of any black person. Well, that comes right from the Dred Scott decision. Right. That, that, that by law, that a, that a white person does not have to respect the rights of any blacks. Right. That, right. Was, our, that was our law at one time. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, and you know, some things are, are laws, some laws are written and then they're unwritten, but they're not forgotten. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. And we, we just did a book called Citizens. And one of the things about that book, Citizens, was the fact that how invisible, you know, black folks are to white folk. We just we are naturally invisible. Well, you and that can, was always interesting to me. Where you said, "Well, you know, no, no." I mean, and you you just said, "Well, I'm gonna go. I'm going through this jail. I'm seeing all these black folks. Majority of them here. Let me understand something about them. Let me understand why." This is existing. Let me right. teach this. So the more you teach it, the more you start to understand. But it's a volunteer kind of thing. Whereas with us, it was necessary for you to keep. Like one of the first things my grandfather told me, he said, he said, I, don't, I can't give you a lot of things. I'm not going to leave you a lot of things. I'm raised in the South. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to stay alive. Right. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, there are, I would say, uh, compounding that is we live in a community that's geographically quite separate. I mean, there are parts of this greater Cleveland area that are almost exclusively white, and there are parts of the greater Cleveland area, I'd say probably this area that right around this library that's almost exclusively black. And the uh, one of the, the topics that I think we were going to talk about was this idea of connecting uh, both a, a mosque and a suburban white church together to work on a project in East Cleveland to trying to reach across some of those barriers. But I take your point that um, yes, you can you can, the invisible man. I mean, for a lot of white people living in an exclusively white environment, and uh, African Americans are you know on the periphery. Yeah, and that's. That's certainly true the way I grew up. I didn't go to school with an African-American until high school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the only people I, I ever saw who were African-American were there to serve me in one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the person who cleaned our house, etc. Um, I mean, this is a, a middle class, upper middle class uh, suburban environment that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and I, I don't think that's that unusual for no, the that's, yeah. that's normal. Well, it's it's not unusual for people's experience. No, to be in a in a racially exclusive. So, yeah. So what I'm I guess so what I'm doing is is in in my work is trying to run counter to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, the thing of it is, is you you it was interesting 
and especially how you got into that whole thing when you tell me you studied civil rights and you go straight to Mississippi to learn because that's that's hardcore when you go to Mississippi to learn something. That's yeah, hardcore. well, I, I had a, a dissertation, PhD dissertation topic in Mississippi, so I was spending a lot of time doing research down there, mm-hmm. making connections, and that led to my going to Delta State and saying, how about when I do some research down here next semester, how about I teach a class? And before long, I was a visiting professor at Delta State. So my my interest in a Mississippi topic led to a part-time job in Mississippi for the academic year 2009-2010. So, so when you were at Delta State, did you teach black history there or did you teach history there? What did you teach at Delta State? Uh, yes, I, I developed a civil rights – I developed a course called Civil Rights in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, there, had, there was not a civil rights history class at Delta State University. I developed it. Myself and, an, and a colleague of mine developed a class. And right around us, within 20 minutes of, of that classroom, was, was where Emmett Till was killed. Okay. Another 30 okay. minutes was Parchman Penitentiary. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, the river right. was right. I mean, so right. much uh, civil rights history was right around us. So all we had to do is get in a van and go Mount Bayou. I don't know if you know Mount Bayou, Mississippi. It was an all-black town. It was where they used to have – it was the headquarters of what was called the Regional Council – Mississippi – I'm going get to get it wrong. Regional Council of Black Leadership or Negro Leadership. Mm-hmm. I can get the full name for you. But it was, a, it was an all-black town founded by former slaves right adjacent to Cleveland, Mississippi – and, you know, we went over there to, to meet those people. And so it was a rich laboratory in our backyard mm-hmm. to have a civil rights class. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's, yeah. I know Parchment Penitentiary. I know that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know Parchment. history of it. Yeah. Yeah, notorious. Yeah. Notorious. Yeah. Yeah. And it was pretty quite large too. Parchment Penitentiary was quite. 27,000 acres, I'm told. But yeah. I've, I've seen other figures. But, yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah. And you drive past it and they say they, there's huge signs that say, do not stop your car. I mean, I, I thought I would like pull in and take some pictures and so forth. But as you're driving past it, it's like, you know, you just got to keep moving. Yeah. Um, so I, I would, you know, I would be, int- we have Delta State that's right near Parchman. Just like I'm trying to connect up Case Western Reserve University with the prisons here, I would think Delta State University and Parchman would want to do some kind of programming together because mm. um, they're so close to one another but but not so huh? no not when i was there anyway no not yeah. so mississippi kind of stays kind of the same i mean it's kind of it's kind of sticks yeah i know i know one of the largest blues archives is in we go back to the blues again we ain't gonna, we ain't gonna stay <laughs> it's in mississippi it's bb king's you know his museum is in Indianola, which is right by yeah. Cleveland. It's a beautiful museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mississippi is a kind of a it's, it's a kind of staple when you when you get to looking at racism and you're just the standard a staple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They they like you know that's hardcore. Mississippi is hardcore for lack well, of a better term. Yeah, the, so seg- what, the seg- racial segregation is is very um, uh, obvious in, in the history of racial segregation. Yeah. You know, the railroad tracks running down the middle of the town, and yeah. this is the black section, and uh, you know, African Americans not welcome on one side of town, and 
However, we have a river that's running right through the middle of our town. And when I first got to Cleveland, uh, Ohio, at least heard tell that African-Americans weren't so welcome on the west side of town. And and Little Italy was its own uh, little enclave, oh, and yeah. you know, sure. et, et cetera. So, um, yes, you have the remnants of legal segregation in a place like Mississippi or Georgia, et cetera. But in, in Ohio, you have the remnants of years and years of practice. And um, when we were off camera, we were talking about redlining, which is, you know, banks' uh, lending practices restricted that they won't lend to black people in certain areas. They'll only lend to black people in, in other areas. And therefore, the ghetto gets created, a black ghetto gets created in a certain geographic place. And the creation of the ghetto has the full support. And the, it's essentially a creation of banking law and lending law. And it's reinforced by that. So it's two different kinds of segregation, but it, we're still divided. Yeah. What, do you, what do you see as, uh, in your studies, in your travels, because you, you, know, you do world travel, you know, uh, it'd be interesting to find, you know, how other cultures, because you go to China, yeah. what do you see? How do you see? What kind of answers do you see? Or what kind of things do you see we need to evolve to, to kind of overcome some of these things in the past? Just from a teacher's standpoint, just yeah. from your experience, you know. Well, you mentioned China. You know, I'm over there for uh, five or six weeks every year teaching Chinese, primarily Chinese students. They don't have a race uh, per se. They don't have a – within the Chinese culture, there's not so much racism, but there is racism against the Japanese. Mm -hmm. There's this ancient hatred between Japanese and Chinese people. And you know, there's there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, unfinished business between those two cultures, and the need for reparations, the need for apology, and so when I when I teach World War II and the aftermath of World War II, it's an easy jump to talk about the China, Japan uh, divide with the racial divide in America. It's of course totally different history, but it's this kind of ancient intractable problem. What do I see as the, the problem here and where do we go from here? Was that the essence yeah. of your question? Yeah, that's the essence. Well, as one individual or as individuals, you and I, we can, what can we do? I mean, you, you live in a certain community. I live in a certain community. We can impact our friends. We can impact our communities. We can't change necessarily the whole world, uh, but we can change our own networks and our own communities. So you and I can try to figure out some uh, alliance to work within communities. Mm -hmm. And what we we're talking about, <clears throat> I am a member of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights. And Mutawaf Shahid is an imam of Al-Munin uh, Al Ma Ma Mosque, mm -hmm. which, is all, which is in Cleveland. Right. And maybe there's some connection between a Presbyterian church and a mosque, between a, essentially an, a mostly white institution and a mostly African-American institution. Right. And I think the, we're talking about involving Jewish in, folk in this too as well. Yeah, so that could be. And uh, could there be a connection between two churches and working in a, in a project in uh, East Cleveland, for example? Right. So there... What can we do? We can we can work on a small scale, on a manageable scale, 
uh, to chip away at the problem, to, um, to reach across barriers. I right. mean, isn't that what we're, uh, we're always supposed to be doing that? I guess I believe that. Right. And when I bring a group of young, fairly privileged undergraduates from Case Western Reserve University, bring them into a prison and do a workshop in a prison, you often see uh, initial barriers of privilege, often of race, often of education level between a group of undergraduates from Case Western Reserve University and a group of students who are incarcerated in a state prison. You sit down at a table and you start talking about, hey, what's your favorite movie? Or hey, do you have children? Or where are you from? Or you know, five minutes later, you realize you have something in common with one another. Mm -hmm. And that can be the basis for some kind of a productive relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and learning comes from relationships. And, he, and when you're talking about these various religious groups, you're not talking about, and my understanding is, is that you're not talking about dealing with religious problems. You're talking about dealing with just personal, everyday kind of prejudices that exist between people without that. Yeah. Because sometimes religion is, is a thing that keeps things divided. Right. You know, you know, you Christians or sometimes. Well, it, it's going to be uh, as uh, we're just discussing it now, but it, it's going to be interfaith as I described. But I think what we're going to do is work shoulder to shoulder on some kind of a service project. It's not necessarily right. going to be sitting down and talking about religion and talking about what we believe uh, in the Quran or the Bible or whatever. It would be more maybe working in a tutoring program right. together. Right. Or working, um, you know, helping with some kind of a, a, a food drive or, a, you yeah. know, a, that a book drive or something like that. We haven't got the details worked out, but you, when you work side by side with somebody, you learn something about them, and, and oftentimes the bond becomes strong through that. Are you teaching? You are. You going to China soon? Yeah, right now I'm teaching a Black history, sort of African American history, up through 1877, which is the end of the Reconstruction period. Uh, that's that's the course I'm now teaching at Cleveland State. Mm -hmm. I've al also taught a course this semester at the Siegel Learning Center, which is an adult learning center associated with Case Western Reserve University. So that's that's an American history class. That's already ended, and the and the the Cleveland State class will end in a couple of weeks. Okay. At the end of May, then I go to China for the month of June and early July. And then in the fall, I'll teach, this is confusing, but I'll teach at Case Western Reserve University and Lorraine Correctional Institution. <laughs> so I <laughs> so jump around. Lorraine, like, Lorraine Correctional Institution, what are you teaching there? The course is, is, have you ever heard of the inside out model where universities and prisons connect over programming? It's no. happening in various parts of the country. It no, started not, not in not by that terminology. No, go ahead. Yeah, it started at Temple University and a prison right outside of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and they they got together and they're doing courses inside the prison with Temple University students and incarcerated students together, doing workshops and taking accredited courses. And my class combines Case Western Reserve University students and students at Lorraine Correctional Institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the inside students, what we call the inside students, the incarcerated students, are getting credits from Tri-C. Mm -hmm. So there are actually three institutions involved. But it, I have 17 students at Case, and I have 17 students who are incarcerated at Lorraine. 
We start at the end of August. We finish right before Christmas, so we have a 15-week schedule. Uh, one class meets on Monday, Wednesday. The other class meets on Tuesday, Thursday. We go through the same syllabus and the same reading list, and then we get together for workshops, and we also have teleconferences over the phone. You, I'm trying to com essentially combine the two learning experiences across barriers of often race. My, my students who are locked up, ma the majority of them are black, mm. uh, and my students who are at at Case Western Reserve University are not. Um, so very, the majority very, of students from the outside are white. Majority of students yeah, I mean, Case is actually quite a quite a mixture. Um, I'll have some black students at, at Case. I'll have some students from Asia at Case. Um, I'll have some some white kids that know, are involved in this program. For the, yeah, so my 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 students at Case Western Reserve University are are quite a, a mixture of races and cultures. Okay. Um, and that actually that mix is getting more interesting as the years go on. I've done this since tw 2013. Okay. So this will be my seventh year. So when you get, when you get like Chinese students from the outside who are involved with blacks on the inside. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. How do they, what do they perceive? I mean, what are their expectations? I mean, how do they look at that? Yeah. Well, what you try to do is, as an educator, what, and it's exciting. You get these two groups in a room together, and you got a two-hour workshop. And one of the first things you do is create a wagon wheel where you start to rotate around and break the ice. And after 20 minutes, everybody's has talked a little bit, and everybody's easy with each other. And then you can break them into smaller groups and actually talk about the text you're reading, talk about the issues. What is their personal reaction to one another? I think they're surprised by how much they have in common. And mm -hmm. if, if I can get uh, students to see how much they have in common, that's 95% of, of my job as an educator is to, is to reach across those kind of barriers. Because there's so many stereotypes. There's such a stigma about people that are locked up, people that are felons. Right. And, right. and so if you can break down some of that um, and it's, hey, this person is actually – you know, as skilled a student and as intelligent and as ready to learn as I am, I mean, that's that's a real eye-opener for a 19-year-old student. And and vice versa. I mean, the, the students who are locked up often have uh, projections about what a college student is. And somebody who's going to a, an elite private college like Case Western Reserve University, there are all kinds of projections. Oh, they're going to be a snob. They're going to be judging me. They're going to be coming in here and they're going to all be rich and privileged. And that all those stereotypes drop away too. So um, when you do this, yeah, is this both male? Is this a male on both sides, or is this a, is a mixture of female? My students at Case are, are both sexes, and it's an all-male prison. Okay. So you have to take some – I mean, the prison is very conscious of, of – for good reasons. They're very conscious of security. They're very conscious uh, when they bring women into an all-male environment. They make a point of – there's a, a big yard in the middle of Lorraine Correctional Institution. They make a point of clearing the yard when our group goes across it to make sure the women aren't – cat called and you know that so make sure everybody's comfortable um the department of rehabilitation and corrections the state prison agency has all kinds of rules about how people are dressed and what jewelry they can wear and mm. 
you're bringing women into an all-male environment. So you have to you have to be aware of that. Do you do the same thing in a female in a female prison? Well, you know, when I first was developing this program, I first developed it at the jail. Mm -hmm. So Case Western Reserve and students at the jail, county jail, right down here on West 3rd Street. Mm -hmm. But those people in the jail were cycling in and out every three or four weeks, right. so there was no consistency. Right. My, my first candidate after that for a partner was the women's prison on 30th Street, right near Tri-C. Right. It's NERC, Northeast Rehabilitation right. Center. Uh, and uh, we're talking about doing a course there mm -hmm. in uh, 2020. But the, when I was looking for a partner, Lorraine Correctional Institute said, absolutely, yes, we want you. And it was very easy to set it up there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would love to, to do it in other places. And a women's prison would be a mm -hmm. really interesting place to do it. Yeah. I, I, the reason I ask is because it's my experience with female in the institution is quite different than my experience with males. It's not, the, it's not, it's not the same, you know? Uh, do you want to, do you want to say more about what you're, you're talking about? Yeah. It's, it's, it was just, it was just the experience of, you know, when you, you go into a female prison, you know, you, you're dealing with females who have their, their, Level level of the reasons for being there probably and level is, is a little bit different than men and how you got you know all women's penitentiary the way they interact is a little bit different right than how the men are doing you know? right similar probably the, the nature of the crimes are probably nature, a little the nature of the crimes is different right. so it, it was it was interesting to me to know how that to see how your group would interact with female. Yeah. prisoners as opposed to male prisoners. I would, I would. If, if, because a lot of times I notice a lot of the guys, at least when we were there, uh, they had more long-term goals for getting out of the joint, what they were going to do. And I think they were a little, their long-term goals were a little different than the females' long-term goals. Mm -hmm. Because females, at the time, their long-term goals, you know, it's how many women you're going to have that's doing 25 years in the penitentiary, 20 years in the penitentiary, 15, not, not a lot. Right. And a lot of them were black. A lot of the women, a lot of females were black because we were going to Marysville. Right. So I don't know. And that, that, that would be interesting to me to see how right. that kind of group would interact, you know, and you have, you bring in males and females. Right. Into the I would, I would, I would like to do it at some point. And, uh, I look forward to, to, uh, setting up a course at, at some point. I, at uh, Northeast Rehabilitation Center, yeah. uh, very much so. Um, a lot of the guys that are students in my classes at Lorraine ha do have these very long sentences. So somebody could get locked up at 19, mm -hmm. and they're in my class at age 42. Yeah, I mean, and they're mature, they're ready to, to do the work, they, they're cap certainly capable of doing the work, and they're much a much different person in many ways than they were at 19. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know specifically about the length of sentences at NERC, but I imagine there's some probably some drug cases uh, where people are having shorter sentences than you would with a with a violent crime. I don't know though. I teach this course that I've been describing at Lorraine Correctional Institution. I actually lead a book discussion, a weekly book discussion group as a volunteer at Grafton Correctional Institution, which is another men's prison, as I say, located across the street. So I year round 
am in the prisons, uh, am at Grafton Correctional Institution, leading a book discussion group. Uh, now, right what now, is that? what is your book discussion? Well, we pick a book uh, and we meet on Thursday mornings for an hour and a half, and uh, I kind of kick it off with a couple of questions. But the other the, the guys or the participants, they have their questions. It often goes right from the text to another subject or a related subject, mm -hmm. like how they experience. You know, what's, what's yeah. the age group? Primary that you're dealing with. Well, I have a guy in there who's probably. I think he said he's 68. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, he. Uh, there's a guy in there who's a grandfather, definitely. Um, there's some much younger people, mm -hmm. uh, mostly black, but some. We've had some white faces uh, in there. How long? Um, how long have primarily the people that you're teaching in the institution? How long have they been in there? Most of them. What's the average time? You know, we don't talk specifically about their sentences. It'll come up if they want to volunteer, if they're telling a story mm -hmm. about, you know, um, you know, something that, something related to the book, and they, they start relating their own personal experience. But I'm not going to be, you know, like when yeah. we introduce ourselves, I'm not going to ask, like, what are you, yeah, so. If you need to get contact. Sure. Information about what you're doing, if somebody wanted to contact you and talk to you about it you yeah. know, or refer some folk to you. How okay. would they do that? Sure. Well, first of all, let me just thank you, Yassine, for, for inviting me on the show and for EB for, for uh, putting this together. Um, it's, it's really good to be with you and really good to enjoy uh, talking with you about my work. If anyone wants to contact me, the, the easiest way would be email. Mm -hmm. And uh, my email address is B as in Benjamin, X as in X-ray, S as in Sperry, 63 at case.edu. So BXS63 at case.edu. And uh, sure, I would welcome emails and just a, a chance to, to hear from people. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm attending Fairmount Church, so you can reach, people can reach me by phone, I suppose, through a message at Fairmount Presbyterian Church, but email is the most direct way. And thank you for being here with us today at the WEBS, the E.B. Smith Project, at the East Cleveland Public Library at 14101 Euclid Avenue. And we thank Dr. Sperry for being here with us. And we look forward to seeing, talk to him again in some of his projects. Sure. That's going to be here. Well, thank you. The views and opinions of the guests or hosts are not the views of the East Cleveland Library staff or management. Any complaints or comments should be sent to the E.B. Smith Project, LLC, at ebsmithmedia at gmail.com. <laughs>